Uh, if you'd like to take your Bibles and open it to Romans chapter 6, we'll be reading verses 1 to 14 together. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of, you, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like, like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like, the, like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now we have died with Christ. We believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So ye also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been bought from from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good evening, everyone. We're back in the book of Romans. What a fantastic big letter. The ideas in the book of Romans are incredible. Our understanding and our vision of God is enlarged every time we move forward in the book of Romans. Now we've come to chapter 6. There was a famous preacher last century, a man called Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who said that he wouldn't preach the book of Romans until he understood chapter 6. And he was asked that question, when will you preach the whole book of Romans? He was asked that question in 1943. He then began his series in 1955 in the book of Romans. So you can see chapter 6 is a pivotal chapter. It's also a bit of a difficult chapter. The ideas are incredible. But the brilliant thing is that the ideas are totally applicable to life as a Christian. How do we live now that we know the grace of God, the kindness of God? How do we know how to live that we've been transferred from one kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of sin, the kingdom where sin reigns, into the kingdom of Jesus' reign? Well, we get a small window into what that looks like, hence tonight's title, the transfer window. So let's pray as we have a little look. Father God, we praise you and thank you for your love for us in sending your Son, for your love for us in giving us your word, that we may know you more, that we may grow to love you more. Father, we pray that we would live for you as you have loved us, as you have come for us, that we may live for you, that we may live to you. We pray, Heavenly Father, please help us understand what's in your word this evening. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder how you're reacting to news of the COVID-19 vaccine. What great news over the course of this past week. It's certainly welcome news. Everyone, I think, across the world virtually has breathed a huge sigh of relief. But I don't know if you've noticed, it's provoked two responses. And I wonder where you fall. The one response that I've certainly been aware of is one of caution. Those politicians and those medical experts who appear on our screen say, look, it's great that we've got word of the vaccine, but keep 
to the rules. Observe social distancing. Make sure you're wearing a mask. Sanitize your hands. Keep doing that. It's going to take a while to get this thing rolled out. Don't go lax. The other response is one of throwing caution, not maintaining caution, but throwing caution to the wind. The attitude is, we're going to be all right. There's a vaccine there so we can live how we want. Well, in the knowledge of God's grace, it's possible to have similar reactions. One is one of caution, or we'll call it more formally, legalism. We stick to the rules. In fact, we keep our sticking to the rules. We keep all of the commandments. We obey all of the law. It has to be that way. But Paul in Romans chapter 5 has dealt with that. That's one reaction. The other reaction to God's grace is another of license. We can do whatever we want. We throw all caution to the wind. We don't need to live in a certain way anymore. We've been inoculated against God's judgment, so to speak. Well, how are we to react? How are we to live? In the light of God's grace, his incredible generosity in forgiving us and placing all of our sins on Jesus, who died on the cross for them. How are we to live? Is it a life bound up by rules? Or is it a life of freedom? Freedom from rules. Well, this was the question that Paul anticipated in the minds of those who are listening or who are reading his words. Let me read chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? He asks the question, what are we to do then with sin? Do we continue to sin? Of course, that's a very natural reaction in us, isn't it? If we know we've been secured with Jesus, that he's given us his righteousness, that we've been made right with him, as chapter 5 says, remember the start of chapter 5? Chapter 5, verse 1, right at the very top, top of chapter 5, verse 1, let, it, let me read it. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We are secure. We have the certificate that says, saved, made right, no need to fear any longer. We have that. That's in the bag. But the very natural question that flows out of that is, well, can I live now however I want. Now that I've got that in the bag, now that I'm secure, now that I've got my ticket to heaven, can I live whatever way I want? Can I, Paul says, continue to sin? He asks this question. It's quite a sharp rhetorical question because we know the answer and he gives it to us in verse 2. Just in case we're in any doubt, absolutely not, verse 2, by no means. It's emphatic. It's strong. No way. He says, are you out of your mind? We can't live whatever way we want, even though we're tempted to. We can't think to ourselves, I've got that certificate of salvation. Therefore, we can live whatever way we want. Christians no longer live in sin. Have a look at that first one. What shall we say then? Oh, we continue in sin that grace may abound. See, this was a rather 
bizarre idea or perhaps a very natural idea. We all love and we all want God's grace and we want more and more of it. And we know that our sin is met by God with God's grace, with his generosity and forgiveness and bringing us into his kingdom. So we might even think, well, let's sin just a bit more in order to benefit from God's grace even more. By no means, verse 2, Paul says, Christians no longer live in sin because we've died to sin. Now, what is he talking about? Well, he goes on to explain in the next few verses just exactly what he means, just exactly what this dying to sin means. Have a look. Verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What's his logic? Well, the first statement is Christians no longer live in sin. By no means. We can't continue in sin. We don't move into sin. Why? Well, chapter 6, verse 3 onwards, because Christians are plunged into Christ's death and his new life. You see how he describes it, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? In other words, those of us who are no longer living in sin, we're now living in, in Jesus Christ, and we have gone through Jesus' death with him. We have died to sin. It's gone. It's past. No longer are we to live for sin. Rather, in Christ, we're to live beyond sin. We have been so plunged, baptized into Christ Jesus, into his death. This dramatic change has taken place. It's dramatic, this dramatic phraseology here, isn't it? We've been baptized into Jesus' death. So we've gone through Jesus' death with him, and then verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. You see, he's not really talking about the physical act. Think of a swimming pool or a big baptismal pool. That helps aid us and aid our understanding. But he's not really outlining exactly what baptism, the sacrament, is about here. Rather, he's using this sharp language to describe just exactly the spiritual reality. We have a window on the spiritual reality of what has really happened to us when we've become in Christ, when we've become a Christian. We were buried, therefore, verse 4, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is the reality. We've died, and now we're alive with Jesus, in Jesus. For what and to what? Well, you see that at the end of verse 4 newness of life. What's the word conveying? 
Well, it's conveying something brand new, as in something that hasn't been seen before. There's nothing like this newness of life. There's nothing like this lifestyle. It's a brand new way of living, entirely new for the individual. Where previously, the life, our lives, before we became Christians, was all about ourselves. Was all about our rule of ourselves. Our independence from God. And we live as a result of that. Our hearts have been turned towards ourselves away from God. We no longer give thanks to God as we're supposed to, but then we die with Jesus. And that way of life dies with Jesus. We're so in Jesus that we die with Jesus. And we've been raised as he was raised from the grave. We are raised to the worst brand new life, newness of life. How does this occur? How has this happened? Well, he answers this in verse five. If we've been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, do you see how he works this out? Here is his logic. And what's the word that's used, the principal word that's used in this verse five? If we've been united with him, in a death like his. You see, this is the reality for the Christian. The word that's used here conveys something, well, well, two items that are so close and so almost identical, it's so difficult to tell them apart. And that's Paul's description of the Christian. That the Christian, individual Christian, is so part of Jesus, so in Jesus, that it's difficult to tell them apart. We're enmeshed with Jesus. We're so connected with Jesus. We're so joined to Jesus that it's virtually visually impossible, as he's trying to convey here, to tell the difference between who is who. That's the confidence that being a Christian brings. We're so connected. We're so joined. We're so united with Jesus that, verse 5, the rest of the logic we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self, verse six, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Here is the language of death. Here is the language of burial. Here's the language of the grave or the morgue. We know that when we die, we won't sin. We simply won't have breath to sin. And he's saying that the spiritual reality for the individual Christian, for the one who's been united with Jesus, so enmeshed with Jesus, joined with Jesus, is that death has occurred for the Christian. Spiritual death has occurred for the Christian. Therefore, in its place, there is new life. 
there is a resurrection life. As Jesus Christ himself was raised from the dead, there's a brand new or a newness of life for the Christian. This is a window into the reality of the transfer from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of sin, the kingdom of self-rule, to the kingdom of Jesus, to Jesus' rule. We move from one kind of slavery, from one kind of service, to Jesus' rule, to Jesus' mastery. You see that in verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. The promise of resurrection for the Christian, the resurrection to eternal life with Jesus, if we're in Jesus. Verse 8, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. You see, being in Christ has broken the power of sin. And being in Christ places the believer into the presence of God. Christians accompany Christ in his death. Christ now lives to God in God's presence. And as Christ has gone that way, so those who are in him, so those who are enmeshed with him, so those who are united with him, go the same way. And our lives now are towards and for God. He becomes our new master. No longer sin, slavery to sin, but Christ, God, is our master, our ruler. That's, if you like, the spiritual side of things. That is, if you like, the reality, the the ultimate reality. So how are we to live? Well, verse 11 summarizes exactly how we're to live. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see, this is an act of constant attending to this truth, isn't it? Remembering this truth, this, this incredible fact, as God sees us, this is what has happened to us. We've been transferred. We see in to the, rea- the realm, God's realm, the spiritual realm. But we know, of course, that we haven't experienced physical death yet. But the spiritual reality is the truth. What is true for Christ is true for those who are united with Christ. And that is to be our life's motto, verse 11, so to speak. We must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So how are you this evening thinking of yourself? If you're a Christian, how are you living Are you living for sin? Are you living to God? Living a life that's died and put to death the things for which Jesus had to die, our sinful rebellion, our acts, our thoughts, our words, our attitudes, 
the small things, the big things. Jesus died for those. He absorbed all of those into himself. He became a sacrifice of atonement. He died. And if you're a Christian, you're so enmeshed in Jesus that those things have died with Jesus as well. And therefore, we ought not to live them any longer. Because the reality is, the spiritual reality is, they have died as Christ has died. We're living lives now that are alive to God in Christ Jesus. So we must not entertain our sin. We must not live under its rule or dominion or power. And he goes on to say this. Christians no longer live in sin, first few verses. Christians are plunged into Christ's death and new life, next few verses. Then when we get to chapter 6, verse 12, he fully applies these things. Have a look at verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. You know what he's talking about here, don't you? That all of those things, all of those things that drive us, all of those things that control us, all of those things and desires, the, the, the parts of us that want to do things and experience things for which Jesus had to die, were to put those things to death. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. It cannot have the upper hand. And you see this, verse number 10, or sorry, verse number 12, this is your part. This is your responsibility. This is your job. As Jesus has saved us, as Jesus has died for us, here's what we're to do. Verse number 12. We're not to give that sin for which Jesus has died any kind of foothold. We're not to give it any kind of reign or rule in our lives. We're not to give it anything, not a square inch in our lives. Don't let it reign. Remove its throne as a generation of older Christians would have described it. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. He goes on, verse number 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And the word instruments really, I suppose, could be understood as weapons. Weapons in the service of a king. And that king is sin in the case of unrighteousness. For the Christian, the true king, is Jesus. So verse number 13, don't present your members, as in your physical parts, as in yourself, to sin as instruments or weapons for unrighteousness. Don't let that king have any kind of sway in your life. Don't let your body be used in that way. You know the kinds of things he's talking about? Sexual impurity, greed, deceit, 
theft, punching people, anger. Don't let your members. That's the bits of you. To sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Instead, present yourselves, that is, all of you, to God as those who've been brought from death to life. Live the reality and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Then verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. See, as we continue in Jesus Christ, as we continue putting sin to death in our lives, as we continue living righteously for God, you will see that sin not having the upper room, or upper hand rather, the, the rule or dominion of sin will lessen and lessen and lessen and lessen. Now, of course, when will it go entirely? Well, that will be when we're with Christ, not before Actually, whenever you get into chapter 7 of Romans, you hear the incredible struggle that Paul himself has with that sin. He wonders, what on earth is going to rescue me? I'm in despair. I know what I should be doing. Instead, I do the bad that I should not be doing. It's great pastoral comfort to individuals to know that St. Paul himself struggled with sin, knowing that that was incongruous with living a life of righteousness. And he declares his absolute despair. What do I do? And he praises God that sin will completely disappear when we're with Jesus. See, Romans chapter 6 tells us, in the light of Romans chapter 5, that we're secure. Our life after death is secure in Jesus. Romans chapter 6 is life before death. What is life to look like on this side of the grave for the Christian? Well, it is that we don't give in to sin, that we reject it, that we recognize that sin put Jesus on the cross, our rebellion put Jesus on the cross. The things we say, the things that we do, the things that we think, our attitudes, everything put Jesus on the cross. But the spiritual reality for the Christian is that they've been transferred from that kingdom, have gone through death, have been raised, and life before death looks like what? Well, a life of godliness, a life of love for Jesus, a life of freedom, not to live whatever way we want, but to live following him, to live the way that he would want us to live. Sin, verse 14, has no dominion over you. Sin does not completely disappear from our lives. It does in heaven, but it doesn't rule our lives because when it rules our lives, it ruins our lives. So chapter six, verses one to 14, this great passage that we 
read and understand and the great spiritual realities that are described in it, that in Jesus we have died to sin, therefore we don't have to live under sin anymore because we've been raised in Jesus and we're so connected, so united to Jesus, so enmeshed in Jesus that life is not about sin any longer. We reject its rule. We reject its, verse 14, dominion over us because we're not under law facing the condemnation that the law brings, but under God's grace. He has forgiven us our sins. Jesus has died for our sins. Those of us who are connected to Jesus by believing and trusting in his death are united with Jesus and have gone through his death with him. Being raised to brand new life, forgiveness and freedom from the rule, dominion of sin. What a challenge. What a great God. What a gracious and kind God who's given us his grace so that we may be forgiven and have confidence of that forgiveness and live in the light of it because we have died and been raised in Jesus, plunged into death and being raised with him. Sin is a domineering master seeking to control those under its power in ways that harm them. We know that. We know its severity. It caused Christ to die. Why do we give thanks to God for the great news of his gospel, that our sin has been dealt with, and that being in Jesus means that we have died to sin, therefore no longer need to live in its power and control. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great news of Jesus. We thank you for the great news of his rescue. We thank you for the great news of his death. We thank you for that means that is simply not a theological idea out there, but is incredibly practical as to how we live. Father, we pray that we would understand that we have died to sin, therefore we no longer need to live under its rule as a slave to it. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that we would build our lives around godliness, around the fruit of the Spirit, around all of those things, Heavenly Father, which please you, which make us look like Jesus. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would grasp this more and more in Jesus' name. Amen.